Hi, this is Mario. This is KBLA Talk 1580. Our phone number 1-800-920-1580. 1-800-920-1580. In our third and final hour today, don't forget the cast of New Jack City Live joins us live here in studio. Alan Payne, Tretch, Big Daddy Kane, Gary Dordan, Flex Alexander. Should be a great conversation. If you haven't ever checked out our live stream, uh, today might be a good hour, a good chance to do that. In hour three, uh, go to our app and click on the KBLA TV icon or go straight to our YouTube channel. But all those brothers, um, Alan Payne, Tretch, Big Daddy Kane, Gary Dordan, Flex Alexander, all live in studio today with us in our final hour in about 55 or so minutes from now. But in this hour, new data suggests that racial wealth inequality is gradually declining. But is that cause for celebration? We'll put that question in more right now. To Dietrich Asante Mohammed, Chief of Organizing, Policy, and Equity for the National Community Reinvestment Coalition. Dietrich, good to have you on, my friend. How are you, sir? Uh, it's great to be on. Thanks for having me. It's good to have you on. Thank you for your time. Glad we got the hour. A whole lot to talk about with regard to, again, this new data, which suggests that racial wealth inequality is gradually declining. Uh, why don't you start by unpacking what that means for me first, and we'll jump from there. Yeah, well, and I um, think the first thing to note is that, you know, the record around racial wealth divide, you know, I've done several different reports around racial wealth divide, particularly focused on blacks and whites. And there's been, you know, at different times, different types of analysis that it could take 500 years, that actually it's growing. So I don't think there's strong data uh, that that shows that there's been any significant uh, decline or significant bridging of racial wealth inequality. I believe the 2019 data is some of the you know most recent data that's been out there. And I believe white, black Americans had median wealth of around 9,000 and whites had median wealth of around 160,000. So I don't, uh, you know, I, I think more and more as everyone talks about racial wealth gap and bridging racial wealth gap, people are uh, kind of twisting things around to try to make it seem like we're on a faster uh, direction of improvement than, uh, than 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 time has really shown. Mm-hmm. Um, to your mind, what are the what are the uh, the stubborn uh, causes, uh, the stubborn stubborn factors for why this racial wealth gap in America persists? Yeah, I think you know a huge challenge has been. You know, I think there has been obviously some improvements uh, in terms of racial economic inequality as a whole. Uh, between blacks and whites, say from the 60s and around 1960, about 50% of African Americans were living in poverty, right? That's a, you know, a amazingly high number. There has been decline on that. I think now you see African Americans generally are about 21% uh, poverty rate, something, uh, I guess going down to sometimes estimated around 17%. So right on 20% poverty rate, which is still high, but is, uh, you know, as much more declined than it was say, uh, 60 years ago. Uh, and so he's also seen some improvements in terms of education. But in terms of even uh, income disparities, you know, generally African-Americans are making around 60, 65 cents on every dollar that whites are making, and in terms of wealth, uh, much less. Uh, and the reason I think this continues is that, you know, we had some important civil rights legislation in the 60s, some type of investment in addressing issues of uh, poverty, but we also then, in the 70s, and particularly the 80s, embraced a much more regressive economic structure, where we've seen since the 80s that uh, as, as the economy grows, 
the wealth are disproportionately benefiting and leaving uh, the wealthy are disproportionately benefiting and leaving leave, leaving everyone behind. And in that type of regressive uh, atmosphere that we've had in structures that we've had for the last uh, 40 years, it's very uh, challenging for a group that has uh, such low wealth as African-Americans to make significant progress in bridging uh, racial economic inequality. I want to come back to that notion of a regressive economic structure in just a second, but let me stay with this for a moment here, um, uh, Dietrich. Um, when we, we, we call it all the time, I mean, it, we, we, we use this phrase so much, it just rolls off our lips uh, with ease. We always make reference to this particular phenomenon as a racial wealth gap, a racial wealth gap. Let me ask a question I'm not sure I've ever asked before. We call it a racial wealth gap, but is race, is race the primary factor all these years later for why that wealth gap again persists? Is it primarily race? Well, that's interesting uh, you're bringing up. I mean, I would say it's primarily racism. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't, it's clearly not the fact that people are of different races, so there is inherently some type of uh, wealth divide. Uh, I think it's you know much more an issue of that this country's had uh, an economy based upon white supremacy to privilege whites above others, and that even as was laid out, and, and these aren't new analyses, though more people are talking more about it, but I think it was clear in the 60s that unless there was massive investment in bridging inequality, we can't get to a, uh, you know, let's say post-racial or at least post-racial inequality America. And I think for the last 60 years, you've been bearing witness to that, that the government has not been willing to do that type of investment to really bring a fourth economic equity. We've been focused more on, you know, ending outright illegal segregation and uh, in some aspects of outright discrimination, but not uh, investing to make sure there is inequality, uh, uh, there is greater equality. Because in our capitalist society that has been regressive, uh, inequality will replicate itself. And that is what it's been maintaining, I think, this quote-unquote racial inequality for the last 40 years. Mm-hmm. Let me move now to that regressive economic structure that you referenced a moment ago, Diedrich. Um And I, I guess it's a two-part question, and I try not to ask a two-part question, but let me ask both and get out of your way and give you a few minutes to sort of unpack this for me. Um, I'm wondering whether or not that regressive economic structure that you referenced uh, that we've been dealing with, you know, for the last 40 years or so, has been aimed and targeted at a particular group or groups in this country. So it's one thing to have a structure, but is that regressive economic structure that you referenced targeted, aimed specifically at a particular group, number one, and I'll unpack a bit more about that a little bit later on. Number two, uh, for now, um, is that target, uh, is that, uh, how, do, how do I want to phrase this? Um, so one is, is it, is it targeted? Let, let me just, let me, let me slow up for a second. Let me ask that first. Cause I, I think these things are going to get, I'm going to get convoluted here. I don't want to have that happen. So let yeah. me start, let me start with that. Is, are, are certain groups targeted by this economic structure that you call regressive? Yes, clearly certain groups are. And sometimes it's, uh, focused more on a, let's say, an elite economic class that is primarily white and sometimes it's intentionally not including uh, communities of color uh, as a, uh, as a political bait to ensure uh, support from uh, communities that resent uh, uh, programs that might have a strong effect on, on communities of color. So I think, you know, it's, it's sometimes targeted racially. Sometimes it's not targeted racially. But when you have deep racial wealth inequality, 
you can just target it by class and it still have a disproportionate racial impact. Yep. So let me tell you why, why I back myself up on that, because I, I, I want to also ask whether or not you think the impact, the uh, the effect of these policies specifically on black people and people of color has been has been benign or malignant. Sorry, I, I I thought you were doing a follow up with that. So, and so that's the basic question about whether yeah. it's benign yeah. or malignant. Yeah, yeah, and and what and, and what, I'm, what I'm getting at here is whether or not people of color just happen to be impacted by certain policies, uh, and you know the results are what they are, or whether or not you know we have been you know uh, like black men in this country. You know, I, I said the other day, that I think black men are, are the most maligned group of folk in the history of this country. That's my own assessment. Uh, not that, that black men have been treated much better. But black men, I think, are the most maligned group in this country. I said that in the conversation yesterday, talking about um, the challenges that black men face. And I'm, I'm just wondering whether or not you think that the impacts that we look at, all these divides economically in this country, whether or not those things have been intentional, whether or not those things have been, those results have been deliberate, or whether or not black folk just haven't, you know, pulled themselves up by their bootstraps, so to speak. Well, it's definitely not the lack of pulling yourself up by the bootstraps piece. I think the question I find interesting is, is it, I don't think it's always intentional, but, uh, but, but it's it almost, um, but, but oftentimes there's a positive political response that people can get by making sure that this program doesn't look too black friendly, doesn't look like it's because, because of the kind of racist basis of our politics and even our kind of understanding of how the country works right if things start becoming too focused around blacks and latinos then it seems like it's a handout and we're helping the lazy but if it's helping more white working class people then it's something that is something that is helping those who just need you know an extra step up the ladder so mm-hmm. we have kind of such deep deep racism and understanding of uh, politics and economics that even if uh, and I think you get this a lot in kind of liberal elite circles where they're not thinking per se that, oh, I'm trying to make sure blacks don't get this benefit. But still, even in liberal cities, they manage to maintain deep racial economic inequality uh, because they're not willing to have a deep enough analysis of, 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 of how serious and how broad this economic inequality is and the resources it would take to actually uh, put a pathway forward to bridging this inequality. Now we're getting somewhere. The comment you made just now allows me to go to the second level that I want to go to with regard to this question. Good, good. Uh, I'm glad I'm, I'm helping you get there. You are indeed. I'm, I follow, I'm following you all throughout this hour. As I do every one of my guests. I'm learning and listening to you and following you. So you'll recall, <clears throat> and this is not to cast aspersion on Barack Obama because he has said it at a national level, but I've seen other uh, black politicians say this at local and you know, municipal, regional levels as well. And every time I hear it, it's like, for me, fingernails on a chalkboard. And this is a perfect uh, bookend to what you just said a moment ago. So when Obama's president, for example, he says, in response to a certain pressure from black communities, um, not a whole lot, but some, <laughs> That he can't that he cannot advance policies. He cannot advance economic policies as president that target in particular black people. Um, as you recall, time and time again, he would always say, I ain't the president of black America. I'm the president of all of America. And that line was uttered time and time again. Every time I heard it for me, like fingernails on the chalkboard. But given what you've just said, how do you respond to this notion that politicians at the federal level 
the state level, the municipal level cannot target certain economic policies to relieve the pain and suffering that a particular community that happens to be black is dealing with, Dietrich. Yeah, I mean, clearly that's just, uh, you know, a front to avoid uh, subject matter a politician doesn't want to get into. Because all the time, economic policies are created to help certain segments of the population, certain geographic areas, certain industries, certain type of workers. This is done all the time, right? And there's, you know, the presidents meet, you know, and, and not, not that Native American economic issues are solved. They're not. There's deep disparity. But that doesn't, but, but it is true that, uh, presidents are willing to meet and have conversations around how do we strengthen economic improvements in, you know, on reservations and that there would be, uh, you know, outreach to different types of Latino communities. And sometimes, though they are most hesitant to actually say black, they'll say urban or something like that, there will be meetings around that type of conversation. And, you know, it's interesting, too, you know, and again, I'm not, not trying to jump down Obama, but Obama was willing to be racially targeting when he was talking about uh, pulling yourself up by the black, oh, sorry, by by your bootstraps. Yep. When he had his address around black men, right? Yep. He could be very specific there mm-hmm. uh, in that type of rhetoric. But he, but, and I get you know the, the, there's a cost balance. If you're trying to be president of the United States, then you play the racial politics of the United States. And the racial politics of the United States is you don't outright say you're going to do things for black people because there's a resentment on that. So mm-hmm. you know maybe that helps his political career. And I think. You know, uh, most 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 successful politicians, particularly at a national level, play in that to, to get uh, political uh, points. Yeah. But, you know, my main thing is I don't really care what you're doing for the political career. My main thing is, well, what are you going to do to address this issue? Because for the last uh, 50, 60 years, we haven't been doing the racial economic, we haven't bridged the racial economic inequality. Right. So if you have some universal program that you think can do it, show it to me and let's do it. When we come forward, I want to come right back to that point. So we're, we're working in the direction that I want to move in. And what I'm ultimately trying to get to in this hour is if we know there is a racial inequality gap, um, if we know that um, on all sorts of levels, politically, economically, uh, socially, these divides exist, to the point that Dedrick is making right now, why can't we ever get to a point we have economic policies in this country that specifically target the least among us. Why can't we target black and brown communities? I, I don't get it. I, I'm not naive about the question, but I don't get why. If we know where the pain and suffering is, we can't target it directly. More about that when we come forward, I guess, in this hour. is Dietrich Asante Muhammad. You're listening to KBLA Talk 50. Interrogating your assumptions. And expanding your inventory of ideas. Let's get back to Tavis Smiley on KBLA Talk 1580. Let's get back to Dietrich Asante Muhammad on KBLA Talk 1580. Before I get back to that question I posed a moment ago, Dietrich, um, give me in the audience a sense of what you do every day as the chief of organizing policy and equity for the National Community Reinvestment Coalition. Sure. Thanks for asking. The uh, National Community Reinvestment Coalition started about 1990. The idea was to bring together community groups across the country to advocate around CRA, the Community Reinvestment Act. Uh, the Community Reinvestment Act is a piece of legislation that was actually trying to follow up on uh, kind of the economic agenda of the civil rights movement that had, you know, uh, been started being enforced or started coming into legislation in the late 60s. Uh, and through the Community Reinvestment Act, it was designed to ensure that financial institutions had to also make sure they're doing lending and support in low to moderate income communities because uh Politically, they didn't feel they could actually outright name uh, African-Americans and 
uh, other communities of color. So they focus on this low to moderate income uh, space. But a lot of the groups that originally came together were focused on kind of economic empowerment from the civil rights frame. And today we have over 700 membership organizations that continue to do this type of advocacy. And I oversee the organizing policy research, the newly formed racial economic equity team and the government affairs departments at NCRC. Yep. We mentioned Barack Obama earlier, and I want to tie these two things up. We mentioned Mr. Obama, President Obama, and you just mentioned this economic agenda of the civil rights movement. I want to tie these two things together. When Obama was president, uh, I got in trouble for uh, with a lot of people for trying to my best in love to hold him accountable. But people didn't want to hear that. But I was trying to hold him accountable as I do every president, including Joe Biden right now, who's not progressive enough for me. Uh, Donald Trump, of course, hold another issue. But I've, my entire career, I've tried to use the platforms I've had. Not that I have a monopoly on the truth. I do not. But use these platforms to try to hold people accountable. During the Obama era, I remember very specifically, and you could Google it. It's everywhere. A bunch of black leaders went to see the president at the White House, and um, they came out, and uh, I'd been talking on radio and TV about the, at that time about the fact that there needed to be a black agenda in uh, and during the Obama presidency. And all these black leaders took offense to that. They went to see the president. They came out, did a press conference right there outside the White House, a big press conference, and they basically, you know, you know, without calling my name, said, we don't need to have a black agenda. We got a black president, and we went at it. And I'm talking about all the major leaders of the various civil rights organizations. I'm on radio and television. They're outside the White House, and we're going at it about this notion of whether or not there needs to be uh, a black agenda, and specifically an, an economic agenda for black people. And they, again, <clears throat> in deference to the black president, went out and sang his song, um, uh, you know, uh, verse and chorus, and it was what it was. I'm only raising that now after all these years to ask you whether or not in real time do black folk have an economic agenda? You talk about the economic agenda that came out of the civil rights movement. Well, that was 100 years ago. Do black people writ large have an economic agenda right now? Well, yeah. I mean, I think clearly there has there is no uh clear economic agenda, and there's not even, you know, uh, even major uh, African-American-led organizations who are willing to come together to, uh, you know, push forward a shared agenda. You know, and as someone who has worked uh, head of the economic department at the NAACP, worked with many civil rights organizations, worked under Reverend Sharpton for a couple of years, I still feel pretty confident in seeing and saying that, uh, you know, I haven't seen uh, that type of unity, and I do also appreciate when you said in love, it reminded me so much of the, I think just a week or two ago I was watching that YouTube clip where you and many African-American leaders were having conversations in love mm -hmm. about what needs to be done, and I think, you know, what's clear is people said we don't need a black agenda. Okay, but where are we now? Mm -hmm. You know, it's been quite a while since Obama has been in office, and uh, we haven't moved uh, things forward in terms of bridging racial wealth divide, racial economic inequality. Yeah. I'll say the one thing that has changed a bit, which is interesting, is that moderate mainstream white politicians like Joe Biden are much more willing to say something like the racial wealth gap, the racial wealth divide, and make general references to, uh, you know, bridging this type of inequality when for years, even to get someone to say the racial wealth gap or racial wealth divide was a radical step. Uh. Yeah, so now they're 
saying it, but they're not willing to put forward the policies that actually can address it. Well, he's getting bold about his language. He said he said that, and he said to use the F word the other day, and I mean fascism. So he is getting bolder about <laughs> about at least expressing and using certain vocabulary in his presentations. Uh, I got about a minute and a half before news, traffic, and sports. Let me ask you this right quick, since you mentioned the NAACP where you used to work. Uh, the national president, Mr. Johnson, Derek Johnson, said earlier this week on the King holiday that the racial wealth gap is the single greatest barrier to realizing Dr. King's dream. That was his statement, that the racial wealth gap is the single greatest barrier to realizing Dr. King's dream. Uh, is he right about that? I would say it's the probably greatest and our most helpful indicator in, in, uh, in understanding the country's failure in, a, in, in, in attaining Dr. King's dream. I do think it's clear that Dr. King understood that there had to be a new economics if we were going to address racial economic inequality. And that is why I focused the last 20 years on the racial wealth divide, because I have seen that I think it is uh, one of the greatest indicators to help highlight the great disparity, that if African-Americans' median wealth is 9,000 and whites are 160,000 in 20, well, I guess that was 2019 data, uh, we can see we haven't made much progress and uh, aren't on the path to uh, you know, uh, getting to this uh, dream that Dr. King thought could be a reality, but his economic agenda was ignored. Even when there was a black economic agenda, the freedom budget, it's something that's oftentimes written out of history, and most are totally unaware that it existed and mm -hmm. aren't willing to follow up on it. When we come forward after news, traffic, and sports, I want to come right back to this notion. Uh, I, we, we know that the March on Washington, uh, April, I mean, August 28, uh, 1963, was the, the March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom. I want to come back to that jobs part because you're starting to get into something that most people have never heard, and that is what the economic agenda was. You just teed it up. I'm going to give you a chance to really stretch out on that when we come forward, Diedrich, about what they were expecting economically, what they were pushing for economically in 1963. And now I want to compare and contrast where we are today in that regard. And I haven't forgotten the question we're going to get to in a moment about why we can't seem with our public policy economic public policy to target black communities since that's where the pain and suffering uh, lies. We'll continue with Dietrich Asante Muhammad when we come forward on KBLA Talk 158. Looking for legitimate political discourse without the bear spray? Tune in and speak out. KBLA Talk 1580. I'm Tavis Smiley. You're listening to KBLA Talk 1580. So glad to have you with us in this hour. Our phone number 1-800-920-1580. 1-800-920-1580. We are talking in this hour with our guest, Dietrich Asante Muhammad, who is the Chief of Organizing Policy and Equity for the National Community Reinvestment Coalition, NCRC for short. Before news traffic and sports, we were just starting to talk about, he was teeing up uh, somewhat beautifully, um, the economic agenda that they hoped would come out of the Civil Rights Movement. Earlier this week, of course, on Monday, we celebrated the King holiday. Uh, the national president of the NAACP, Derek Johnson, said earlier this week that he thinks that the racial wealth gap all these years later is the single greatest barrier to realizing Dr. King's dream. That was his assessment. Uh, I wanted to ask Dietrich and Will now uh, to continue on that line of thinking that he was already uh, laying out for us, and that is what the economic agenda of the movement was then. What were, in fact, they demanding? It was, in fact, the March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom. Uh, economically speaking, what were the demands? What were the issues then, Diedrich? And then we'll bring that forward to where we are in 2023. Yeah, and I just want to put forward, you know, I start, my first report I did when I started focusing on the racial wealth divide was a report called The State of the Dream that was put out for about, I don't know, 15 years straight 
using this time of reflection for Dr. King and saying, hey, how much progress has been made uh, since the 1963 March on Washington or since the assassination of Dr. King in 68? How much economic progress has there been and showing that there hasn't been what people have uh, expected? Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of a kind of civil rights economic agenda, um, I don't know off the top of my head the specifics for the March on Washington, but I do know in general what's in the goals of the freedom budget, sure. which was something that was developed in 67, 66, where they got a labor economist to uh, put together what would the economy of the United States need to look like if we're actually going to bridge racial economic inequality. And everyone signed on to it. Mm-hmm. Dr. King, you had the Urban League, you had the NAACP, you had Stokely Carmichael, who was considered a black radical at that time. Everybody endorsed this. And it was things like, you know, an abolition of poverty, a full, infor- uh, full employment, an adequate minimum wage. They were actually looking for, I think, $14.70 in today's dollars of a minimum wage, which is very reflective of the popular movement around a $15 minimum wage that's been happening over the last 10 years. But they were asking for that back in 66, 67. They were also looking for uh, modern health services for all, equitable tax and money policy, which is very interesting that even... Uh, back in that time, they were clear that there was a central role for tax and money policy to be addressed. Um, but, you know, many of the things that, you know, haven't been done, farm income poverty, a guaranteed income, uh, it was a very radical uh, economic agenda that, you know, it's one thing to not get your agenda. But the sad thing is, as you were highlighting, Tavis, is we kind of, we, we not only deny the agenda, we deny the need for an agenda. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, but but remain mired in the same situation. And, you know, and that is something that, you know, uh, you know, I really do hope that we can make progress on. So to your point now, thank you for teaming me up so beautifully for this, to your point about uh, remaining mired in, this, uh, in these same economic conditions, why is it that when it comes to public policy, uh, we cannot seem to target those policies directly to the communities that are being hurt the most. And those communities, um, the data is incontrovertible, unassailable in this regard. Those communities happen to be populated primarily by African-American people. Yet when you talk to politicians from the president on down, as we discussed earlier in the Obama era, he kept making the point, I can't advance economic policies that target specific communities that are black. I, I didn't buy it then. I don't buy it now. I understand politically why people don't want to do it. But it's like going to the hospital and you're in a bad you, you're, you're in a you're in a car accident and you go to the hospital and you got a scratch on your leg. Your leg is, is bleeding a little bit on your on your leg. You got a bump and you got some bumps and bruises on your elbow. But you got a gash in your head. They are not going to start working on the little scratch on your leg uh, when you got trauma to your head. My point is simply this. You target your, uh, your, your work. You aim your work at the, at the greatest amount of pain, where the greatest danger is. So I don't care if these communities are purple, if they're red, if they're, you know, if they're gr- green or some other or, or fuchsia, some other. I don't care what color they are. If this is where the pain and suffering is, why cannot we vis-a-vis public policy target policies and programs to those very communities? Why is that so difficult to do just because they're black people? Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, and again, it's clearly not that they can't. It's like Dr. King said in terms of addressing poverty, that it's not a lack of uh, resources. It's a lack of will, Mm -hmm. right? And, And that's clearly what it all is meant is that, you know, there's a lack of will to say this. Because, again, politicians all the time target funding for their constituents and particular aspects of their constituents. You know, and they might not say 
white working class or what have you, they might say something, you know, more broadly, like rural, or they other say rural working class, but where the money's going is disproportionately white, mm-hmm. right? And it's not hitting uh, the, the, oftentimes communities that are even in greater need. So it definitely can be done. It's do people have the courage to do it? And again, I think, uh, you know, uh, in, in when Jesse Jackson ran for president in 88, he was much more willing to put forth policy. And it doesn't mean every policy has to be only a black person gets it. Sure. You can have policy that doesn't say one racial group gets it, but it's designed to actually uh, connect and hit with that group and, and, and will have a disproportionate effect on them. So there's many ways to do it if you can get past the kind of talking points that, you know, I'm, I'm president of all America, not just for part of America, but you're constantly focused on different parts of America in order to move all of America forward. Yeah, uh, any any serious person would have to recognize that. Yeah, one of one of my critiques of the Obama uh, administration back then, it was really a critique of, of Rahm Emanuel as chief of staff. Um, just to remind people, uh, people ask me all the time, well, Tavis, what would you have wanted the president to do differently? Well, there were a number of things, but one of them was a very simple thing. When they finally got their spending bills passed, um, and he was successful in the first couple of years, you'll recall, people forget this as if it were 100 years ago. When Obama got elected, for the first two years, he had the House and the Senate. He had the White House, of course. He had the House. He had the Senate. Uh, and when they got those spending bills passed, the mistake they made, uh, Dietrich, was they sent that money to the states, not to the cities. They sent that money mm-hmm. to states. And mm-hmm. those states, most of the states at that time, had Republican governors. And for the life of me, all these years later, I cannot understand why they sent that money to everyday people through the state apparatus and rather rather than through cities. If they'd sent that money to cities directly, it would have gotten to black people, right? To your point, you ain't got to necessarily call it black, but it doesn't mean you can't target monies toward people of color. So they sent that money to the states. These Republican governors were in charge of that. You'll recall back in the Obama era, there were a lot of Republican governors that wouldn't even take the Obamacare money. They were so political. They were so anti-Obama. They wouldn't even take money for health care for the people in their states. So what makes you think that if you send money to the states with Republican governors, it's going to ever, pardon the pun, pardon the phrase, trickle down to black people. So my critique was they should have sent that money to the cities and it would have gotten to black people. But to your point, there are a number of ways to do this to get the money to people who look like you and me without you having to say these are black economic policies. Does that make sense? No, and, and, and you know, that's right. And that's why you need a black agenda or at least a black analysis or an analysis of how to, uh, you know, better target uh, African-American communities. I think that's a great a point you're putting forward. I think Charles Blow has been writing recently about how blacks have such little power at the state level, mm-hmm. and that you know, at best, when we have political power, it can be at a city or smaller level. That's right. So something like that, where it's actually given to the cities, That's right. that is a way to help. And again, and it's not like it's a magic wand. It's not like that. All this Obama just would have done that. The racial wealth divide would be closed. No, but that was something substantive that could have been done, and, and that, that we could be building upon instead of saying there's nothing to do. You know, just one more point to make, and again, not to overly beat up on President, the former President Obama, but the idea that you can only do part of America, but one of the early things he did was create a uh, office on, on women empowerment, mm-hmm. right? Uh, when he first came into the office, the last year or two, he did create something around African Americans. It was at the very end of the term, and again, it's like presidents can have special commissions, special focuses on different uh, communities. Uh, and, and they should, because that's how we as a whole can move forward, because communities have unique problems. And as you laid out, I think there's uh, unique pathways to make sure 
the funds and investment are getting to those communities. Yep. You can't talk about the racial wealth gap in this country without talking about the R word, reparations. We'll get into that in a moment with Diedrich Asante Muhammad on KBLA Talk 1580. This hour talking about uh, the fact that there's some new data out that suggests that these people are, are tweaking, as you heard uh, Diedrich say earlier, they're tweaking and twisting the data to suggest that the racial wealth inequality, that racial wealth inequality in this country, rather, is gradually declining. Um, there's some new data out that suggests that we may be making some progress uh, ever so slightly uh, on the racial wealth gap in this country, uh, again, gradually starting to decline, depending on how one reads those numbers. I was asking at the top whether or not that's cause for celebration. Dietrich has unpacked uh, his take of that, um, uh, his take on that, I should say, uh, throughout this hour. Uh, but it seems to me that whatever one thinks of the racial wealth gap in this country, there are all kinds of ideas that people have about what reparations, a real meaningful reparations bill could, would, might, ought do um, to alleviate this racial wealth gap. I don't want to color uh, the lead any more than that, Dietrich. Uh, just give me your take on the connection or not that you see between reparations and the racial wealth gap. Well, you know, as you've been talking about, that one of the most effective ways to address a specific problem is to address that specific problem. And I think that is part of the logic uh, and strength of the reparations argument for African Americans, is that, you know, there should be outright uh, program dedicated to repair uh, the damage, the socioeconomic inequality that uh, racism has uh, created and maintained. Uh, And so I think that is the idea of reparation. I I do think that would be probably the most cost-effective way to to, to bridge this, what I've estimated to be a $10 trillion trillion wealth gap between black America and white America. And as you noted, there is a, and again, I think that that has changed over the last few years. There's a lot more popular conversations. I was blown away in in the previous um, Democratic primary that, you know, mainstream politicians, uh, you know, like even Buttigieg had something, you know, uh, uh, that that mentioned reparations as something to look at or talk about, you Mm -hmm. know, didn't have very specific uh, plans laid out. But I was, you know, that was fascinating because historically before that, uh, almost no Democratic elected official, uh, Democratic presidential candidate uh, would put that forward except for, you know, someone like possibly uh, a reverend uh, Jesse Jackson. I think we have to be clear, too, what we mean by reparations, because now everybody's saying racial wealth gap. People are saying more and more reparations, but oftentimes they just, whatever policy they they supported before, which have proven to be ineffective, they just say, and this will help bridge racial wealth gap, or now we'll call this reparations. So mm-hmm. I think the important thing is to make sure that we actually uh, have some analysis about what type of impacts we expect these policies to have. Nope, I hear you loud and clear, and I think you're right. I know you're right. I've been at this for 30 years now, and there was a, a moment, and I don't mean very long ago, where the word reparations would get you kicked out of the room, right? I mean, it just it was just yeah. it was not taken seriously by anybody. But now uh, you hear everybody talking about reparations, and my sense is it's somewhere uh, in the distance. I don't know where that is or when that is or whether I'll still be around when it happens, but somewhere down the road I think this issue of reparations is going to be taken a great deal more seriously, and something is going to happen. And in California, where this radio station is flagshipped, is leading the way in that regard. I was in a meeting last night about the reparations commission here in California that's about to have um, start uh, touring the state again and having public hearings uh, before they f- uh, finally fashion uh, what reparations is going to look like in California. It's going to happen in California. These public hearings 
that are traveling the state, uh, Northern California, Southern California, again, in a meeting about this last night, and the the role the radio station is going to play in that, uh, these public hearings are about to and, take place. And, yeah. and isn't, aren't the reparations facts, I think this is interesting in California, isn't that too framed around the uh, inequality, the divide around home ownership or, uh, or value of home? Mm-hmm. Isn't that a central part that, of the uh, kind of estimate that is, that is a part of it. Yes, uh, I'm not an expert in it, but I I know the the main the the main framework. And your, your answer is the answer to your question is yes. That's a part of the framework for how they have, uh, are are processing um, what reparations ought to be, what it ought to look like, what the data says. Um, that absolutely is a part of the uh, equation. Um, when we come forward uh, in our remaining moments with Dietrich Asante Muhammad, I guess the exit question is simply this: Save for reparations. Put another way, but for reparations. Does Dietrich think that the racial wealth gap in this country will ever, ever be closed? You're listening to KBLA Talk 15. Let's unpack a little bit more with Tavis Smiley. The conversation continues right now. Right now. Right now. In uh, about five minutes at the top of the hour, uh, we will move into our third and final hour today. In case you've just tuned in, the cast of new Jack City Live. Join us live in studio today. Alan Payne. Tretch, Big Daddy Kane, Gary Dordan, Flex Alexander, all five brothers uh, who are now a part of the New Jack City live stage play that's touring the country. They are in L.A. for the weekend. We'll give you tour dates where they are around the country, but they are in studio. Well, actually, not in studio. For those who are watching us right now on live stream, you know my studio really only accommodates a few people. There's so many of them. We're moving to our conference room, uh, which is being set up right now for my last hour to talk to all these brothers. So stand by for that in about five minutes from now. In our third and final hour, we wrap this hour, though, and I've enjoyed it immensely with Dietrich Asante Muhammad, who's the chief of organizing policy and equity for the National Community Reinvestment Coalition. We've been talking in this hour uh, about the racial wealth gap and uh, new data which suggests that the wealth gap in this country, wealth gap, racial wealth gap, may be gradually declining, depending on how one looks at it. And uh, Dietrich, Dietrich is sort of pushback on that. From his perspective, but um, again, it's news, and so we're talking about it. Um, let me close with this, though, in the three minutes I have left here, Dietrich, and that is the question I posed a moment ago. Whether or not, after all these years, save for reparations, but for reparations, do you ever see the racial, not, not in our lifetimes, obviously, but do you ever see, period, the racial wealth gap in this country ever closing? I think it is possible to make substantive progress in bridging the racial wealth divide, even without reparations, but I still do not see the will. Like, like I, I don't think the issue is reparations or not. It mm-hmm. is the country, is this political leadership willing to seriously say, yes, this is an issue, and yes, we are going to take, we're, we're going to put investments to do this. And I think that, that, is the, that is the greatest challenge we have, and that is why I'm pessimistic. Again, we haven't had it. For the last 40 years, we haven't had it when we had the first black president where we've seen increased black uh, 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 repre- representatives in Congress. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't see who's out there pushing it forth, who has strong political power, that this is going to be a turn that we're making. Mm-hmm. So I am pessimistic on that side, but I think it's not that, oh, reparations is holding us back from getting it. It's people won't even do clear policies, like you said. That was a very basic policy. Well, let's try to much more focus on giving money to the cities. Let's have much clearer uh, analysis of how policies are affecting different communities. Uh, how are we holding financial institutions, other institutions 
responsible for making sure that they don't have a only 2% loan rate to African Americans for homeowner uh, for homeowning uh, but actually uh, you know, hold them to a much higher level. So it's that lack of will yeah. that I think is the biggest problem. We've got 60 seconds left here. Uh, that list you ran, it was a good list of the things that uh, could have happened and things, moments that we've missed. The one thing that's not on that list because it ain't happened yet, and that is that the country is not yet majority-minority. We're just a few years away, some years away, as you well know, for the first time ever, America will be a majority-minority country. Is there any reason you believe that when we get to that point, this issue, uh, I, I might say this issue, these issues uh, of economic equality, not just reparations, but economic equality in our public policy might take a turn? It could take a turn because the, um, the lack of wealth that blacks experience, also Latinos experience, yep. and as that population grows, it could have, you know, it'll put more strong pressure yeah. for there to be more national policy that addresses these, this issue of asset poverty that's going to, uh, you know, be bigger and bigger throughout the United States as we diversify our country. We shall see. For now, we'll leave it there. His name is Dietrich Asante Muhammad. He is the chief of organizing policy and equity for the National Community Reinvestment Coalition, better known as the NCRC. Dietrich, thanks for the conversation. Thanks for the insight, for the sharing, and uh, for the knowledge you've uh, dropped on us this hour. I thank you. Wish you all the best this year, my friend. Yes, sir. Thank you, and thank you for your years of uh, work on uh, highlighting these issues. My great delight. Hour three of Tavis Smiley. After news, traffic, and sports, you're listening to KBLA Talk 1580.